Unity 90.3 FM in Montreal and on www.ckut.ca on the World Wide Web. News, interviews, and music featuring the voices of prisoners, their allies, and supporters. Tune in to the Prison Radio Show on the fourth Friday of every month between 11 a.m. and noon, and every second Thursday of the month between 5 and 6 p.m. To get involved in Prison Radio, or if you need to access past programs, email prison at ckut.ca. Yes, rehabilitation. I wonder if you know what the word means. Do you? It comes from the Latin root habilis. The definition is to invest again with dignity. You consider that part of your job, Harvey, to give a man back the dignity he once had? Your only interest is in how he behaves. You'll conform to our ideas of how you should behave. Number, you weren't a man. You want to be a human? I wasn't Jim Crow, and hell, I was number 586. Why do you do a warder's job? It's a good job. Responsible job. Uh, officers like myself trying to. Scum. We're only enforcing the law. Oh, the law. The law. When they hang my husband, is that just. Good morning and welcome to the Prison Radio Show on CKUT 90.3 FM. Today we'll be airing an interview with Justin Pichet, who is a professor of criminology at the University of Ottawa. He'll be talking about Trudeau's announcement in December that he was ending solitary confinement in Canada. The interview aired on Kingston's Prison Radio Show on CFRC in early December. We'll also be airing an interview with Emily Hill, who works for Aboriginal Legal Services in Toronto. She'll be talking to us about the Ewart Supreme Court decision about the applicability of psychological assessment tests for Indigenous people caught up in the legal system. Up first, we'll be sharing some news. Correctional officers in several cities across Canada held demonstrations against the Prison Needle Exchange Program last month. On November 30th, correctional officers gathered in front of Liberal MP Pat Finnegan's office in Miramichi, New Brunswick, as well in front of Public Safety Minister Ralph Goodale's office in Regina, Saskatchewan, to protest the, needle, the prison needle exchange program. The government recently implemented this program in two institutions, with the Atlantic Institution in New Brunswick being one. Correctional officers from the Atlantic Institution also met with hundreds of members of the public at the Miramichi Farmers Market to gather signatures for an ongoing petition against the PNEP. The Prison Needle Exchange Program provides access to cream needles to prisoners in a strategy to reduce the spread of HIV, AIDS, and hepatitis C amongst drug users in prison. The Prison Needle Exchange Program is supported by the Canadian Nurses Association and the World Health Organization, among many other harm reduction organizations and advocates who say the provision of clean needles in, pr in prisons is in the interest of public health. Healthcare workers inside federal institutions say that clean needles should not be deemed contraband and that refusing to provide clean needles is inconsistent with nurses' code of ethics. Quebec's correctional ombudsperson, Mary Rinfet, tabled the 207, 217 to 218 uh, annual report at the National Assembly last month. The ombudsperson is critical that some Quebec correctional facilities cram as many as three people into a cell meant for one detainee. Overcrowding jeopardizes detainees' safety and increases the risk of violence. Another finding from the report addresses solitary confinement. The report indicates solitary confinement sometimes occurs without regard for the person's mental health, without a predetermined time limit, and for periods of more than 15 days. 
This violates international detention standards. The Quebec Ombudsman asked the Minister de la Sécurité Publique to adopt a, a, a Quebec-wide policy regarding this practice. The three main grounds for sus- sustained complaints were wait times, infringements of the rights, and shortcomings in detainees' living environments. And here's some news from the inside. It's that time of year again, the holiday season, the worst time of year to be in jail. The holidays are the time of year most associated with friends, family, and good times. In prison, they are a constant reminder of what we have lost, have missed, and can never get back. Some people wallow in self-pity and misery. Some choose to deaden their inner pain with drugs and or alcohol. Some hide themselves away in their cells. Others spend the holiday trying to make everyone else feel as miserable as they feel. A few of us try our best to bring a little joy, happiness, and a sense of normalcy to our otherwise screwed up lives and even more screwed up living situation. Years ago, inmates fought for and eventually received permission to decorate our living quarters with some simple holiday decorations. This year, Hollywood released a new movie based on the Hollywood classic, holiday classic, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. They needn't have bothered releasing the new movie since the Grinch is alive and miserable and working for the Correctional Services of Canada. On December 3rd, 2018, on his first official day working as a correctional manager, the Grinch struck. His first act was to order his goon squad to ransack the inmates' living units and seize any and all holiday decorations. The very same decorations that were purchased by the inmates with their own money with the permission of the administration. As everything that is purchased must be approved by the administration, everything goes through an exhaustive, tedious, ridiculous process. A formal proposal must be typed up and submitted no less than 90 days before the scheduled event, activity, or whatever. The actual process usually takes much longer. However, when they decide to smash, steal, or destroy our property, the process is much faster. The only positive thing one can say is that at least these overzealous and heavy-handed stormtroopers are equal opportunity abusers. Everyone gets the boot on their throat. Long existing privileges are taken away, power is abused at every opportunity. Things which were always permitted are refused for little or no reason. For example, this year inmates of the Jewish faith were told they were not permitted to order lox because smoked salmon is a luxury. Really, a $5 can of smoked salmon, of smoked fish is a luxury? These same Jewish inmates were also told that there was no need to make kosher products available because there are already enough halal products already available. These are things that the inmates purchase with their own money, not paid for by the taxpayers or anyone else, with the inmates' own money. Not only is it ridiculous to refuse inmates the ability to purchase such a simple and readily available product, it is an infringement upon their fundamental rights and freedoms. Yes, even lowly inmates still deserve to have our rights respected. Not being aware that Jewish foods are kosher and Muslim foods are halal is a perfect example of the lack of training the staff receive regarding other cultures and religions. Anyways, apparently a small string of LED holiday lights is a fire hazard, despite the fact that LED lights do not even generate heat, and the manufacturer recommends them for both indoor and outdoor use for 90 days. That's right, the manufacturer has certified that they are not a fire hazard and can be used for up to 90 days straight. Yes, the same guards who don't know the difference between kosher food and halal food know the products better than the manufacturer and confiscated the holiday lights. To add insult to injury, the very same screws find it perfectly acceptable to display a Christmas tree with lights in the correctional manager's office. Can you say hypocrites? Of course, those who remember the original Grinch will remember he also decorated his cave with the stuff he stole from Whoville. As I said, the Grinch is alive and well and working for the Correctional Services of Canada. Thank you for that news from the inside.
That was very good. Okay, up first, we'll be sharing an interview from CPR Kingston Prison Radio Show on CFRC. They interviewed Professor Justin Pichet in early December about the Canadian government's announcement that they will be ending solitary confinement. Okay, I'm here with uh, Professor Justin Pichet, and we're going to talk about the Bill C-83 that the Liberal government introduced um, a few months ago now, is that right? Um, And they're framing this as their plan to eliminate the use of administrative and disciplinary segregation. So just in terms of your initial reactions to the bill and what is actually buried into the bill, um, what do you think is going on here? Well, I I have to be honest, when I initially saw the announcement and like the press around it, I was pretty excited. I thought that, uh, you know, that those who have been fighting to end solitary confinement may have, you know, won something. Um, you know, um, some people have been fighting to end solitary confinement for for several years, um, particularly in the wake of the death um, of Ashley Smith um, and uh, Eddie Snowshoe and others. Um, and, you know, it, on the face of it, it seemed like, okay, um, this looks good. looks good in the news and the sound bites, and it looks good on, on the press release. But then uh, you read the bill, um, and you quickly realize that, that this uh, legislation um, may change uh, segregation, but it's certainly not going uh, to eliminate it as the government uh, claims it will. Um, I mean, there's some um, good things, I think, that could come from it, um, um, on paper anyways. Um, You know, having prisoners removed um, from the general population to get access uh, to human contact um, programs and services, I mean, that seems like a step uh, in the right direction, a minimum of four hours a day um, outside your cell um, and interactions with people for two hours a day. I mean, it's better than um, than what uh, has been going on um, in terms of, of isolating uh, people um, for pretty much uh, their entire time within those spaces. Um, but I think... Um, you know, it, it just barely meets the test of meeting the Mandela rules for um, uh, for uh, the treatment of, of prisoners. The threshold for them is 22 hours a day um, in the cell. That would be called solitary confinement, and they're kind of just like hovering around that threshold. Um, you know, um, I think another potentially good thing is that when they go in there in the structured intervention units or the SIUs, um, so they'll have shoes and SIUs, or I guess they'll just all be SIUs now, uh, structured intervention units, um, that they're supposed to create a plan to quote unquote reintegrate uh, them into the mainstream population. Um, So at least like they're not going in there and it's just like, well, will come out when when we decide kind of thing so I mean on paper that looks good but um, you know then you read further along in the bill and then you find out there's no oversight uh, and 
quite like frankly, external oversight. Yeah, there's no external oversight. So CSE basically um, is there to police themselves, and um, there's not really a point in their history as an organization. Um, and you know whether it's the Correctional Service Canada or the, Can uh, the Canadian Penitentiary Service that came before it. Uh, and then previous iterations of, of what the federal penitentiary system is. There's not, um, there's not examples of them being able to, to run their own ship to even meet their own legislative and policy um, guidelines. So, um, you know, why would we suddenly uh, trust them now? I think that's hugely uh, problematic. So the legislation can say what it wants. Um, I don't think CSC can actually um, implement it uh, in practice. They, 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 they have proven incapable over and over again to do so. So, I mean, that's, um, that's, uh, that's one issue um, that I would see. Um, the other, I mean, I could, uh, well, I guess we, we have time to get into this, but, um, you know, um, it talks about... Um, basically having these kind of contacts where we're going to monitor the health of the prisoners um, through healthcare professionals, um, but that's not external oversight. Um, they're going to have uh, the wardens review the placements. Um, uh, you know, that's not external oversight. Um, I think the governments basically decide not to learn um, lessons from the past, like Ashley Smith, for instance. If she was going into an SIU, I don't think that changes anything. Um, it was the warden and the management that were looking over her, her stuff to begin with and shuffling her off to different institutions to reset clocks and stuff uh, in terms of how long they could uh, keep her in there. Um, you know, we're going to let them do that again. That doesn't really make sense to me. Um, so the, the government has been um, has already implemented a kind of modified regime as a result of these um, class action lawsuits and like it seems like a, the pressure has been piling up from civil society and and from lawsuits around solitary confinement already so there was already um, a reduced use of this coming into this context so is this um, are they giving into the guards union or what why do you think that they are why do you think they've introduced a bill that changes seemingly so little? Well, I mean, one of the things that it does change is, like, they, they have, when they came into government, um, you know, they, they talked about time caps and, and solitary confinement and segregation. It's, it's actually reduced quite a bit from when the conservatives mm -hmm. uh, were in office. Um, but one of the things that this bill does... Um, is while it, it, it on paper gives uh, prisoners more human contact and access to programs and services. So on the one hand, you know, you'd have the guards union saying, well, that's not really solitary confinement. That's not really, um, you know, what, what, what it is and what it should be. Um, but then on the other hand, um, I don't know if this was a trade-off, but you have no time limits for placements in these structured intervention units. So... Um, you know, um, they previously introduced Bill C-656 that had um, time limits, in it, and that's that's gone. Um, so I think without targets with respect to the number of consecutive days one can spend 
um, in an SIU and then the total number of, of days in a year they can spend in there, um, they're really potentially opening the door up for um, quite an expanded use of, um, of structured intervention units, what they're calling it. Um, in the bill itself, there's also this language in there where they can convert any space within the federal penitentiary system into a structured intervention unit. So I mean, they've really opened up the door. I'm not saying this is gonna happen, but the entire system could be converted into a structured intervention unit and they'd all be living by these, these guidelines um, if, you know, um, if they, they wanted uh, to do it and like I'm not saying they're gonna go there but I mean it does it does allow for I mean there's only so many uh, solitary con confinement spaces and segregation units within the system now right and you know this kind of um, to allow the conversion of these spaces according to that that new SIU routine um, is pretty problematic to me especially when there's you know there's no caps, um, but that's gone. It's, it's you know, um, not, that, not that I think that, that those caps, I mean, solitary confinement, I've been advocating given the, the, the impacts that it has on, on, on people, um, you know, the people uh, that are warehoused in those conditions as well as the people working in it. I, I can't imagine you're, you come out of that being uh, the person you were um, treating people like that and subjecting people like that and having that amount of power that's corrupting you on a on a daily basis when you're working I mean that's got to seep into other parts of your life um, you know um, it's I think it's it, it, it it's potentially very scary like I know that um, that uh, Lisa Kerr who's a law prof at, at Queen's University wrote an op-ed in the Globe and Mail saying that, you know, there's a lot of promising things here. It could end solitary confinement in federal penitentiaries. Um, but I, I think um, when you look at the bill uh, closely, um, there there's a lot of potential here for, for more harm than exists at present, I think. Um, yeah. That was an interview with Justin Pichet that aired on CFRC Kingston's prison radio show. Uh, we're going to share some ads with you, and then we will get back to the rest of that interview. CKUT is hiring a funding and outreach coordinator. The Funding and Outreach Coordinator is responsible for coordinating our fundraising and promotional activities, which include, but are not limited to, coordinating our 10-day on-air funding drive taking place in the spring, liaising with sponsors and donors, grant writing, promotion of CKUT's programming and activities through social media, and outreach and promotion on campus to McGill students. This is a full-time position. For full details, please go to ckut.ca. Deadline for application is Tuesday, January 1st at 6 p.m. To apply, please send your CV and cover letter to hiring at ckut.ca with the subject line, Funding and Outreach Coordinator. Only those eligible for an interview will be contacted. CKUT is a progressive working environment and prioritizes the unique contributions that individuals from marginalized and oppressed communities can bring. We also recognize experiences outside of the formal workforce as important qualifications. 
Applicants should feel free to make mention of the diverse experiences that they may have had that would make them qualified for this position. Whose data? Our data. When you're not paying for a product, you are the product. Especially in web and email services, where multinationals compete to manage your communication so they can make a profit off of the private communication you are producing. Kumbit is a worker cooperative trying to help small organizations or individuals get their email, website creation, and website hosting services off corporate services such as Google. For more information, contact us at kumbit.org or email at info at kumbit.org. That's K-O-U-M-B-I-T. We are not on Facebook. So it looks like we don't actually have time to air the rest of that interview with Justin Pichet that aired on CFRC Kingston's Prison Radio. You can check out CFRC's archives and we will post the entire uh, entire piece on our blog, which is prisonradioshow.wordpress.com. So you can check it out there. We did want to say that as of December 17th, an Ontario court granted the federal government four more months to fix its legislation on solitary confinement, which means that correctional services can continue to isolate people for up to 22 hours a day. Bill C-83 is currently in the report stage in the House of Commons. Up next, we're going to share an interview with Emily Hill from Aboriginal Legal Services in Toronto. <clears throat> in the interview, we talked to Emily about the Ewart decision of the Supreme Court, which happened in the summer of this year. In the summer of 2018, the Supreme Court of Canada declared that Correctional Services Canada was in breach of a section of the Corrections and Conditional Release Act through CSC's use of psychological assessment tests that had not been researched regarding the possibility of bias against Indigenous prisoners. The case was brought forward by Jeffrey Ewart, a Métis prisoner who filed a complaint against CSC 18 years ago that started this process. Joining us on the show today is Emily Hill, who works for Aboriginal Legal Services in Toronto and was one of the lawyers who worked on the case. Emily, welcome to the Prison Radio Show. Thank you so much. Um, can you tell us a bit more about what exactly the Supreme Court ruled in the Ewart decision? Yeah, you did a good summary uh, at the beginning. Essentially, uh, the Supreme Court considered five different uh, psychological assessment tools, which are sometimes called psychological assessment tools, sometimes they're called actuarial risk assessment tools. Um, and they, one of them is the hair psychopathy checklist, um, which is supposed to find out whether someone is a psychopath, um, a violence risk appraisal guide, which is called the VRAG, the sex offender risk guide, the SORAG, um, and then a violence risk scale um, called the VRSSO. And these are all tools that are regularly used uh, in different aspects of the criminal justice system, but in this case, particularly by corrections, um, to determine people's uh, risk level. Uh, and then that information gets, uh, can get used to make decisions about uh, people's security clearance, uh, what kind of institution they're placed at, what kind of programming they're able to attend, whether they have, you know, visits, whether, you know, all sorts of different things. Um, and so the risk assessment tools become a really important part of an offender's um, or a prisoner's profile within the correctional facility and within the correctional system overall. And so the Supreme Court uh, looked at those tools and the allegation that was made by Mr. Ewart through his lawyers that those tools had never been tested to make sure that they didn't exhibit bias against uh, Indigenous 
uh, prisoners. And they brought evidence from other countries where to make sure that they don't have bias, they, are, they, they were tested in other countries with other populations. So I think in, in Britain, they tested some of these tools to make sure that there was no bias against black people. And in Australia, they were using them to make sure that there was no bias against Indigenous people there. But uh, that research had never been done in the Canadian context for Canadian Indigenous people. And so the Supreme Court looked at that and said that was, as you say, in breach of the very section of the corrections um, legislation that says you're supposed to specifically consider the needs, the special needs of uh, Indigenous inmates. Can you talk about all of the steps that brought us up to this point? I know that Mr. Ewart filed his first grievance on this subject through the process within Correctional Services Canada 18 years ago, but what's happened since then? I can do it at a very high level. Uh, it's a complicated, long process, and Mr. Ewart should be commended for his uh, patience and tenacity because uh, he was up against you know, a lot of lawyers from the Correctional Service Canada, and it took a really, really long time. And, and I wasn't, we didn't represent Mr. Ewart. Aboriginal Legal Services intervened in the case, so we went on our own. So I don't know all of the ins and outs, but essentially he brought an application, yeah, starting about 18, 18 years ago, he brought a, a grievance uh, that was then appealed through the federal court system, and it eventually got to a federal court. And at that first stage, the federal judge had some time for Mr. Ewart's arguments that there was a concern that uh, these these tools hadn't been properly assessed and that there was a risk, of course, that without checking that, that they would be validated for in Indigenous offenders, there was a risk that their risk level could be exaggerated and they might be experiencing uh, the consequences of being, you know, their risk being um, accessed as higher than it actually was. But the court at that time was uh, persuaded by the lawyers for the federal government that they were undertaking research, that they were doing research, that they were in the process of having their own researchers validate these tests and consider uh, whether there was any possibility of, of bias. Um, and so therefore, the federal court at that time said, you know, because the government is looking into this, you know, we, this doesn't need to go any further. Um, and so that case stopped. Uh, and then years later, this, um, the Mr. Ewart started another case where he brought evidence. Um, so there was an, uh, two experts. One expert um, was uh, ex-psychologist who worked in Vancouver, and another was a psychologist who worked for corrections. Um, and then there was also an expert about policies and corrections. And they gave evidence uh, at the federal court. And uh, in the decision um, of the federal court, the, the judge said, I'm convinced that there is at least a risk of cultural bias and the failure to investigate means that there could be consequences for uh, Indigenous inmates. And there, in fact, were consequences um, for Mr. Ewart uh, that they looked through his correctional record and saw times where decisions about his liberties uh, within the system were made based on these, uh, these records. Uh, and therefore, there was, they, in fact, the court found that there was a violation of the charter and, you know, there should be a remedy. And so then it was supposed to go back to have a, another hearing in front of the court about what should be done about this. How should this research be conducted? How are we going to test it? You know, that was supposed to be the next test. But before that could happen, before that first judge could make that determination, the federal government appealed to the Federal Court of Appeal. And the Federal Court of Appeal said, we disagree with this decision. That was an error uh, that, the, that Mr. Ewart had only raised the possibility of a risk that these, these tools might be causing bias. He hadn't been able to actually demonstrate that there was bias, which is, of course is a bit unfair because how was someone supposed to demonstrate bias when these haven't even been tested? And how was Mr. Ewart, who is himself an inmate, supposed to demonstrate that there is bias in psychological tests? But in any event, they threw the case out. And so that's why Mr. Ewart then had to appeal the case to the Supreme Court. And that's how we ended up there. 
What does the outcome of this decision mean? Like, is CSC going to have to change their use of psychological assessment tools? Um, are they going to be required to do this research? Is there any follow-up that comes after this? That's a really good question. And I think one of the things that happened at the Supreme Court was that the court said that this was a breach of their own statute. It wasn't a constitutional case. It wasn't a charter case. And so some people might be familiar with, you know, when a law is struck down because it's found to be unconstitutional, sometimes that makes the remedy really clear. That just law just doesn't exist anymore. In this case, the court issued a declaration saying, we find that CSE breached its own legislation. But that doesn't really tell us what it's required to do or what it means for Mr. Ewart or what it means for other inmates who may have been subject to these tests when there is this doubt as to whether or not there's any bias. So what it means, CSC does, if they're going to continue to use these tests, they do have to do research to demonstrate that there isn't bias or if there is bias to use different tests. In the lead up to the release of this case, they said, in fact, they they debated that they even use one of these tests anymore. They said that there, in fact, had been research since the beginning of the case to, uh, you know, up to the Supreme Court. They actually made a motion to try to introduce new evidence to the Supreme Court about sort of the validity of these tests, and, and that motion was denied. So it's not entirely clear what the state of this is right now. There hasn't been any public follow-up that I'm aware of. So CSC hasn't announced that it's done all this research and the outcomes of that. They haven't announced that they've stopped using these tests. Um, and so it makes it a bit difficult to know, well, what, you know, what should somebody do if they think that their, um, their liberty or their decisions about how they are um, in the correctional system are being affected by these tests. Uh, it, it's, the path is not entirely clear in terms of how to challenge those. It sounds like things aren't clear specifically in terms of like CSC and their policy, but are there are there things that this could mean in terms of setting a precedent in the courts themselves? Are there other cases or situations where this ruling might be applicable, especially for prisoners who are trying to seek redress about this kind of stuff? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the decision has some really good language about discrimination in corrections uh, against Indigenous inmates. And so I think that there's actually really, we think that it, it does have a lot of precedential value because there's been a lot of cases from the Supreme Court, like Gladue and Ipeely, that talk about the criminal justice system as a whole um, and the sentencing process um, as a place where there is systemic racism. And CSC has already said publicly, well, we follow Gladue and we think about the needs of Indigenous inmates, and they are supposed to because of that legislation. But this case says in some very strong language that we know that there is still discrimination against Indigenous people within the correctional system, and we see that in the numbers. When you look at the overrepresentation that happens in segregation and in maximum security and in people serving uh, until the very end of their sentence and not being able to access parole, all of those, uh, in all of those sort of negative ways that sentences can be longer and harder to serve, Aboriginal people are overrepresented. And so the court really comes at that and says this shows that there is systemic discrimination within CSC and that CSC is obliged to address it. Uh, so I do think that if there are individuals who um, are experiencing that, they feel that they are being uh, treated more harshly um, because of, of who they are and because of their, uh, the fact that they're Indigenous, they can point to this decision and the finding of this decision that CSE failed to meet its obligations to provide programs and policies that meet their unique needs. Um, because and it's not... It's not that the tests themselves or that the CSC itself are discriminating in a way that's really obvious. Sometimes this happens. One of the arguments that we made is the way these tests 
discriminate is they, they put too much weight in what are called static factors. So when they do these tests, they'll often have questions about, you know, did you grow up in poverty? Did you grow up uh, with a lack of access to education? Did you grow up with a lack of access to um, health care? Did you know people as you were growing up who were in jail? And those are things that are much more likely as a result of colonialism to be experienced by, you know, Indigenous families. And as an Indigenous adult, there's nothing you can do about those things. You can't go back in time and change any of that. And so no matter how well you're doing in terms of your own rehabilitation or reintegration plan, how well you're doing on your own healing path, different choices that you're making, you can never take away those what are called static or unchanging factors. And some of these tests put too much weight on those, and that works against Indigenous people. So it's not that people are saying, well, you're Indigenous and therefore you're high risk, but when they run it through that test, surprise, surprise, at the end, the people who are Indigenous are more likely to be considered high risk, even though um, that doesn't predict that they actually are going to be more of a risk to reoffend. So you mentioned that ALS was an intervener in this case. Can you talk a bit a bit more about what that means and also a bit more about how ALS makes decisions to intervene in cases like this and what kind of cases ALS decides to get involved in? Mm-hmm. It's a good question. So interveners are not parties. So parties are those who are directly affected by the case. So in this case, Mr. Hewitt was directly affected and the Correctional Service of Canada was directly represented. So they're the parties. Um, But when there are others uh, who say to the court that either they have a unique uh, position or opinion or they represent people who are directly affected uh, or they have a different perspective that the court should hear, the court can decide to grant what's called intervenous status where you get a very little amount of time to make oral arguments, to go to court and make an argument, usually only five minutes, uh, and you can get a chance to make written argument and usually only 10 pages. So it's a very limited right you have, but you can go and say, you know, this is why you need to consider our point of view. And at the Supreme Court, it happens pretty regularly because Supreme Court decisions are usually important. They they necessarily are of national importance, and they are binding across the country. And so lots of times people, you know, different organizations come to the Supreme Court and say that they have want to have their voice heard. But just because you ask for intervener status doesn't mean the court will grant it. And in this case, there were a number of interveners. Um, so the Native Women's Association of Canada, Elizabeth Fry, um, West Coast Prison Justice, Prison Legal Services, a Human Rights Commission, um, the Union of British Columbia Indian Chiefs, all of those different organizations applied to the court and the court said, yes, we want to hear what you have to say along with Aboriginal Legal Services. And so I think the fact that the decision is as strong as it is about the experience of Indigenous inmates and about the the legacy of colonialism and how it plays out in racism in the, in the criminal justice system is because those voices, those Indigenous voices were there at the court. And in terms of Aboriginal legal services, we get involved in cases um, in not just at the Supreme Court. We also have gotten involved in cases that are at the Court of Appeal uh, and sometimes even at the trial level, uh, although less, that's less common. And we make those decisions based on what cases that we think we can make a difference in and that will make a difference for Indigenous people uh, in Canada. We are based in Toronto and do most of our work in southern and, and the near north of Ontario. So we, are, we consider ourselves more knowledgeable about the experiences of urban people um, than people who um, are on reserves or in remote communities. There are, you know, we are not the best voice for, for those individuals. But for urban people, we have, uh, and people who are involved in the criminal justice system, Aboriginal Legal Services has been working in this area for more than 25 years. So we have some expertise uh, about what what happens uh, for Indigenous people in the criminal justice system. And if we see that there's a law that is going to make things better, make things worse, we try to uh, ask for intervention status so that we can share that knowledge with the court um, and uh, hopefully move the law a little closer to justice. Sometimes that is... Uh, trying to prevent a bad law. It is a bad law and we see the impact and it might look neutral on its face, 
but it's actually having a disproportionate impact on Aboriginal people. Um, we might choose to get involved in that case. Or we might see a good law, a law that we think is actually helping, and other people are, you know, there's other attacks on it, and we're standing up to say, no, no, we want to keep that in place. Um, but they're hard decisions to make because we're, we're a small office with only a few lawyers, and we can't take on every case that we believe in, so we sort of have to make some strategic decisions about which cases we think are really going to have an impact. We thought the UART decision was important because we know these psychological tests are used not only in the federal system, they're used in the provincial system, they're used in probations, and it's a real failure of CSC to follow through on their commitment um, to uh, Indigenous inmates. And, and we thought that this was an opportunity to get a very strongly worded judgment that we thought we could use, um, not only in the case of Mr. Eward and in those kinds of decisions, but in other settings. And I think that we're going to do that. So it's not just with regard to risk assessment tools, but if you think about other programs or policies that CSC runs that are not taking into account the circumstances of Indigenous offenders, then we think we could use Eward to say, look, you're falling down and, you know, that you you risk another court case. Yeah, so you're talking about ways that you think the UART decision can get used, and I think that's a really interesting direction to go in. You mentioned earlier that ALS was involved in GLADU, or maybe you didn't mention that they were involved. Mm -hmm. I think I read on your website that that Mm -hmm. Aboriginal Legal Services was involved in um, GLADU and was involved in IPLI, and I wonder if you could talk about how those cases have made an impact or whether they have made an impact on like the effects of colonialism and how that relates to overrepresentation of Indigenous people in the criminal justice system in Canada. The crisis of overrepresentation is only getting worse. So you, we would have hoped that with the decisions of Cladu and the decisions of Ipeli, that we would one of the reason why that what those decisions say is you need to consider the unique circumstances of Aboriginal uh, or Indigenous uh, people who are being sentenced because they are subject to systemic discrimination and they are there is a crisis. The, the court used the word crisis of overrepresentation in our country. The the jails are way vastly overrepresented with Aboriginal people, particularly in the prairies, particularly for women uh, and also for young people, and um, that problem is getting worse. So it hasn't been a magic bullet. It hasn't been a solution that has, you know, just solved this problem. But we are involved at Aboriginal Legal Services. Um, we're involved in the Gladue courts, the specialized courts there in, that are in Toronto. And we have Gladue writers who write Gladue reports. And we see the impact of that information when it's properly given to a judge. So when a judge is sentencing someone, they are supposed to consider all sorts of things, including the particular offense and the particular offender. And what we know uh, is that judges don't often have enough information about the person they're sentencing and what brought them before courts. And a well-written Gladue report that actually gets at who that person is um, and what has uh, led them to be before the courts and what might help them stay away from the courts in the future can really make a difference in sentencing. It can really change the kind of sentence. It can mean that the difference between jail and not jail, between lengthy jail and shorter jail, or between a order that includes um, opportunities for restorative justice or rehabilitative justice. So while it's not, there are, there are many um, other things that need to change to address systemic overrepresentation, um, the use of Gladue reports uh, and Gladue information to uh, let judges know who it is that they're sentencing and what options might be available rather than just putting people back in jail can make a real difference. In terms of analyzing like the broader situation that's happening with prisons in Canada, I know the word mass incarceration or the phrase mass incarceration has been used a lot in the United States. And I'm curious if you have anything to say about whether or not you think that that is also happening in Canada. Um, and if so, why? And if not, why not? 
not a criminologist, so I don't know whether that's the right word to use. But I know that the statistics, as I said, the statistics show us that, you know, that the overrepresentation of, you know, Aboriginal people is, is in fact a crisis. It, 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 the numbers show that we are uh, in Canadians in Canada, the government, the state of Canada is throwing, you know, Indigenous people uh, in jail at, a, at an alarming, alarming rate. And the problem is getting worse, not better. And so in the same way that I think that alarm bells were raised about mass incarceration in the States, we should be raising those alarm bells in Canada. And I think some of the root causes are the same and some of the root causes are different. And so one of the areas that we've been doing some systemic advocacy around and trying to intervene in cases and trying to make a difference in is cases where there's a mandatory minimum. So that was one of the things that happened in the States that led to mass incarceration of um, African-Americans was mandatory minimum sentences where it didn't, you couldn't take into account the circumstances of the offense or the offender. If you're, you know, if you commit this crime, then you go to jail for this amount of time. And that was not really something that was done in Canada, um, other than for two or three offenses, you know, for murder and things like that. Um, we didn't really have these very strong mandatory minimums. We respected judges uh, and the independence of judges to hear the case, hear about the offense, hear about the victim, hear about an offender, and make a decision um, that reflected the right response. And over the years, more and more mandatory minimums crept into our criminal code, and now we have a lot of them. And that has contributed to the problem of overrepresentation because it means that people's life circumstances can't be taken into account. It means that the unique circumstances of, of an Aboriginal inmate who, uh, or an offender who may um, have a context that's necessary to understand and if properly understood a judge might be able to craft a sentence that would actually really help that person not come into conflict with the law again none of that can be done because the law just says that you get two or three or five or ten years uh, so that's one way that we see a parallel with the states and we think that we should be learning the lessons from the states we can look there and see that that didn't work it didn't keep communities safer um, and it in fact harmed certain communities disproportionately so we should be addressing that here in Canada uh, and I think that with regard to Aboriginal women especially, the over-incarceration rates are astronomical. And um, Elizabeth Fry Society has done some really good work to point out that a lot of uh, the women who are incarcerated, Indigenous women who are incarcerated, in fact, almost all of them um, have a history of being victims of violence, victims of domestic violence, childhood violence. And so we have to look at why are we, who are we putting in jail? Are we putting, are we, are we using jail to respond to other uh, social harms, and should we actually instead be providing support um, rather than uh, incarcerating people? So a lot of our listeners are folks incarcerated in the Montreal area, and I know that is a bit outside of, um, I mean, we're far from Toronto. So I'm just wondering um, if if there's a way for people who are in prison who are hearing this to contact Aboriginal Legal Services, whether just to ask for more information about this case or to ask what other cases you guys are working on or maybe to propose other cases that might be in the works that different people have going on. Um, do you guys have a mailing address that people could get in touch with you by? Yeah, uh, we are, you know, as I say, we're not, um, we're a small agency and we don't, uh, we provide some services, but not all services. And so one thing that's important to know is we don't do sort of criminal defense. So sometimes people contact us because they either have a criminal case that's ongoing or an appeal or they are, you know, a victim of wrongful conviction. And those are not usually cases that we can take on. It's not work that we, that we can do. Uh, and so we usually just end up telling people to, you know, contact, you know, their legal aid agencies or the John Howard or those kinds of places. So I don't want to let people, you know, for people to think that Aboriginal Legal Services can 
can can fill all those needs. But um, we do try to provide information when can people reach out reach out to us, and especially I can I can know there's so many barriers for people who are incarcerated to get good information and to have good access to information. So um, if people want to write to us, uh, our address is 211 Young Street, uh, Suite 500, M5B. 1M4. And, you know, in terms of uh, getting cases to us, the, the timeliness of it is important. So, you know, if a lot of your listeners may already be serving their time, and that probably means that the sentence is, you know, it's already been imposed and there's not much opportunity to, to intervene after that point. Um, but, if, you know, in cases where, what we, where we usually get involved, and it's usually lawyers who get a hold of us, but not always, you know, is, is, is in the lead up to appeals. So when we hear about a case that's going through an appeal, we may be contacted by a you know, an, an inmate, we may be contacted by a lawyer, someone who knows the work that we do, and, and they let us know about it happening. So that's usually the time when we can get involved. That's great. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about that I didn't ask about? Just that I don't know. I mean, I've never been uh, incarcerated, so I don't know what it's like, really. Um, I only know what people have told me and what I've learned through the work that I've done. But I, I, I hope that people can use the UART decision to, to stand up for their rights within CSC because the decision doesn't just talk about assessment tools. It talks about the, the section that it refers to refers to all policies and procedures. So if there's something that's happening within a federal penitentiary that is a, is a policy or procedure that is not taking into account the special circumstances of Indigenous people, and it's not just Indigenous people, there's also women and people with mental health issues, then UART could be used to grieve that. So I can think of situations where people aren't getting the programming that they need. Maybe they're not getting access to a spiritual um, a counselor. They're not being able to pro- act, practice their spirituality, to access an elder, to be able to smudge, uh, to be able to eat food that's important for them, to be able to see family, those sorts of things. If there's an aspect of that that is about um, their needs as an in- Indigenous inmate, if they can, you know, in terms of grieving that process or challenging that process, pointing to the section of the uh, Correctional Corrections Act um, and uh, the CCRA uh, point to Section 4 uh, of that legislation and pointing to um, the UART decision and what it says about the obligation that CSC has. They should be doing that without being asked, but if, but if inmates need to ask, then they should be able to ask and pointing to um, the section um, and pointing to the UART and saying, what are you doing to meet your obligation to meet my needs um, as an Aboriginal inmate? Great. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Emily. You're welcome. I'm so glad that uh, you reached out because it, it's, you know, we do this work um, with the goal of ultimately, you know, uh, assisting uh, Indigenous uh, communities and Indigenous inmates and individuals and ultimately trying to reform the justice system and to try to return justice, return to justice procedures and practices that make sense for Indigenous communities and are led by Indigenous communities. And it's always our hope that when we do things that are at the Supreme Court that the impacts are felt at the real front line. And so I hope that um, it's helpful for uh, inmates to hear about the UART decision and to encourage people to follow up and read the decision and read the factum and, and use it um, if, they are, if they are experiencing discrimination or experiencing uh, barriers uh, in their experience um, within, within the institution. That was Emily Hill from Aboriginal Legal Services in Toronto. Talked about the UART Supreme Court decision as well as other challenges facing Indigenous prisoners in Canada. It is currently 11.48. You're listening to the Prison Radio Show on CKUT 90.3 FM, 91.7 on cable, and online at www.ckut.ca.
portrait. N'oublierai jamais. Je veux sortir mon hostie. Sortir mon Mon bossu sale sang C'est à moi ou c'est à lui Mais toi le gros niaiseux T'as jamais rien fait T'es dix-sept parce que tu veux That was the song Le Screw by Richard Desjardins from the movie Le Parti. Uh, we're going to play an ad and then we will be pretty much out of here. New Year's Eve noise demo, Monday, December 31st at 4.30 p.m. Join us this New Year's Eve to send loud messages of solidarity to those behind bars as we celebrate ongoing prisoner resistance and renew our commitment to a world without prisons. We will be meeting at the corners of La Jeunesse and Arriborassa and taking buses to the prisons in Laval. Dress warmly and bring some things to make some noise. That's Monday, December 31st, starting at 4.30 p.m. at the corner of La Jeunesse and Arriborassa. More information available at nyecontraprison at riseup.net. New Year's Eve noise demo, a CKUT co-presentation.
Check out past episodes of the Prison Radio Show at prisonradioshow.wordpress.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Prison Radio Show. The Prison Radio Show airs twice a month on CKUT. We're on the air on the second Thursday of the month at 5 p.m. and the fourth Friday at 11 a.m. The next Prison Radio Show will air on Thursday, January 10th at 5 p.m. If you have any questions on anything that you have heard on today's show, or if you wish to be involved with the show, feel free to contact us at prison at ckut.ca. Formerly incarcerated people are encouraged to participate. Folks can also leave a message on our listener comment line at 514-448-4041, extension 2547. If you are in prison, we encourage you to participate in the show in any way possible. Feel free to write us at the Prison Radio Show or simply write PRS, care of CKUT, 3647 University Street, Montreal, Quebec, H3A 2B3. That's all for the Prison Radio Show today on CKUT 90.3 FM. We're going to end with one last song request from the inside. This is New Order's Bizarre Love Triangle.
Shining off of people's teeth. <laughs> That's how clean I was. Can you do it? Right. Man, then the DJ would just stop the song and slow fade. Power went off. That's what I felt like. Giving you that dramatic part. And you know something heavy is coming on. Something fast on the book. You know. One of them hot disco tracks. With the funky drum roll intro telling people, I'm here, here I am. <laughs> you know what I mean. And it goes, yeah, like that. FM, Sound of Soul. Bunch of T's out this week. Meantime Tuts is on vacation. She got me and DJ Majess for a minute. Ricky Dizzy. Yeah. Getting into the swing. Kicking it back into the 70s right now. 
Oh, oh, oh.